Okay, folks, so welcome to Unstandardized English as ever. My name is JBB Gerald. Uh, this is a show where we talk about uh, the justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. My name, I said JBB Gerald. I'm not doing that again. Um, look, this one is with Dr. Wendy Castillo. She is the guest this time. And uh, we're going to talk about, she has a recent, well, recent in academia terms, which means last March, published article on quant crit, um, which I've talked about once before on this show, um, but I want to dig into it from her perspective, um, because I really think it's an important part of challenging the orthodoxy in academia to question the supremacy that numbers have, or just, it's not that, again, numbers aren't the problem, it's the way that they are given authority, and they're not given any context. Because you, people don't have the time to read very bad academic writing because almost all academic writing is bad. And so they just look for the findings and the findings are often numerical. And because like when the findings are qualitative, we write it so poorly that nobody wants to read it. So they can go to the findings and see the numbers and the number says this percent increased, this percent bad. And it leads to a lot of the problems, especially when it comes to racism and education. So I'm going to talk to her about that. Um, that's it. It's uh, This is coming out last one of the year, although you might be listening to it in early 23. Um, I'll say happy holidays to all and a new year to you. I didn't say happy new year, just a new year. <laughs> but happy new year also, and I hope you continue to enjoy the show. There is a Patreon, but frankly, at this point, I'd rather you buy my book. So the book is uh, linked in the show notes. It's, again, called Antisocial Language Teaching. You can find it on my website, jbbgerald.com. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. Folks, back on unstandardized English. Uh, you know me, I'm JBB Gerald. I'm here with Dr. Wendy Castillo. Um, I will let her introduce herself in a second, but uh, we're going to talk about numbers and how to be critical with them and a whole bunch of other stuff related to that. But Dr. Castillo, thank you for joining me after I sort of thank you for a while. <laughs> nice to be here. Hello, everyone. So just tell us a little bit about just generally your, your research, that sort of thing, and then we can get into the sort of conversations. Yeah, so uh, my name is Wendy Castillo, and I was born and raised in East Los Angeles, California, um, and now I reside in New Jersey. Um, but I consider myself an evidence-based activist or an evidence-based advocate because I like to use numbers to tell stories and use numbers for social justice. So a lot of my recent work has been in thinking about how to tell stories with data and how to be critical of numbers and question their objectivity and neutrality, but also use them to advance um, students, to advance the goals of reaching equity for students of color. I'm trying to think of the best direction to go within that because I can go directly into, you know, the article that, I don't know if it's your most recent article, but the recent article from, I guess it was Mark. Um, or we could talk generally about those concepts. Let me start with the second one. Um, and then we'll zero in on the article eventually. I think I tend to talk my way into this as much here. When I started my doc program, I was convinced I was going to be a quantitative researcher. I said, no one's going to take me seriously unless I'm a quantitative researcher. So um, I started my first semester just sort of reading a lot of quantitative articles 
just to get a big flavor of it, you know? And it's one thing what the people chose to focus on, but it was really hard to find a person behind the form, you know, like to find a person in the articles um, and be that the researchers or the participants. It just didn't seem like people in either way, right? And I found that sort of disconcerting. That's not true for all quantitative articles, but I think from what you're saying, like, that's got to be sort of something you've thought of before, right? How the people behind the numbers aren't... Numbers by themselves are a story. Michael. Yeah, so interestingly enough, I also started my doc program saying I want to be a quantitative researcher. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to understand like the white man's language. I wanted to be taken seriously by society. And I wanted to be able to investigate and like push back against what some white economists have been saying of students of color and taken seriously. So I wanted to have the credentials to back that up. Then, after you know, I did everything I was supposed to do. I took all the classes. I was trained in quantitative research by this particularly randomized control trials in quasi-experimental design. I did my dissertation measurement. I analyzed, I created a new instrument. I validated it. Um, and then once I finished, I realized that I've been doing everything we've always been doing. So I built upon the prior knowledge, which was based off of predominantly white scholars basing their research on predominantly white middle-class children. So I built upon that rather than redoing everything and rethinking that I built upon that. And I created a reading motivation instrument that was really good for white children, I think. Um, and I didn't really try to do anything differently. And my advisory committee, my dissertation committee didn't push me to think anything differently because, and I don't blame them, they're just used to doing the status quo, which is built upon the prior knowledge and test it, validate it, finish it, write about it. So I was done with my dissertation and I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? Like I was creating a reading motivation instrument for Philadelphia public school students and I used the previous literature that was based on white children. So I thought that probably missed out on so much richness by not centering the students of Philadelphia. What did literacy look like for black and brown students in Philadelphia? It probably is very different from what it looks like from white middle class students. Um, so from then on, I was like, I'm never doing that again. I got my PhD. Now people will take me seriously, but now I'm going to question things. And that's how I began this journey of unlearning and relearning through the framework of quant crit. So that's the journey that I've been on. And when I worked at NYU, I created a computer science assessment for elementary school students. And this time around, even though it was COVID, I was like, I'm not doing this based off of the existing literature and I'm not doing it alone. So with the Committee of Expert Teachers in New York City Schools, we co-created um, an instrument that was based off of what they were teaching in New York City schools um, that was culturally relevant and that was based off of what they needed to know in computer science. Um, so that was just a totally different process where I was working with teachers and guiding them on how to make an instrument, but they were bringing all their content. They were bringing all their contextual experience. They were testing the, the things that we were creating in their classrooms and they were bringing back the feedback 
it was this great loop. Um, and that was just a completely different process from me being a PhD student, creating my own thing, and then validating it, and then graduating. So ever since then, I've been questioning how everything is created. I'm going to rewind there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I hope we get into this stuff. I love it. Um, that's why I do this, right? You know, it's not that many people listening, so mostly because I, I enjoy something when I don't. I don't get a chance to have the conversation besides this, because um, I don't actually work in academia, right? Um, so, I think that's an important point you made at the end there about questioning, like, the foundation. You know, you didn't use that word, but... Um, because ultimately, if we're only... I think there's been a lot of great research done over the years that are questioning conclusions. You know, saying that I have to come to the conclusion. You know, like you're challenging it piecemeal. But you're just changing the surface, you know? And I think it reminds me of some of the work that I do for when I give talks about like whiteness and linkages and all that stuff that I talk about. Um, these are middle aged people at my talks. And I realized that the foundation, like when they were being trained, is when I needed to get to them. Because they're listening to me. But the last 20 years, they could have been doing stuff differently. And the foundation, so like, fall through the poison tree. You gotta either tear down the tree, plant a new tree, or whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, so, and I think you're right. The white man's language, right? The tree is made of numbers. So how do you, what, what's your approach, I think? We sort of explain generally, but when, when you think about pulling apart the tree or confusing myself inside of my metaphor, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Um, well, I think it depends on my audience, right? Um, but I think one of the things that I struggle with when I talk to some people who have just been trained in 20 years, it, they think that they are objective and they think that, you know, like, well, I'm an objective researcher. And I think they need to get past that because numbers and all of their, the process that we do in creating numbers and collecting it, figuring out how to collect it, what to collect, and then how we analyze it and how we report in the entire process. There's so many things that are subjective. Um, I think that we need to get beyond the fact that no one can be objective, not quantitative, not qualitative, and let's just like get that over with. Because if we continue to think that we can be objective or if other people continue to think, I don't think we're ever going to get beyond that. So one, that's one thing that I've, I've heard a lot of from other like economists or other quantitative researchers. Well, I'm objective. Um, and when I give a presentation or anytime I'm giving my personal opinion, I'm like, I'm not objective. I'm here for social justice. I'm here in like, I'm going to do whatever it takes and figure out how to use the data in service of black and brown students like that. I'm not going to pretend that's not a bias of mine. That is a bias of mine. And there's a bias that I am proud of. Um, so that is something that not everybody is in service of social justice. So that's a tension that we have to deal with for research. Should like, what does it mean for researchers and quantitative researchers who are not in service of social justice, who are not in service of black and brown students, because I am, and I will use numbers towards that. I mean, it's, it's, I always talk about anti-bias 
you know. And to me, it's always about what what, what are you doing with your biases? They're, they're there. Perhaps you can mitigate some of them, depending on what they are, but I'm not saying you should mitigate that one. I'm just... <laughs> um, or you can exacerbate them on purpose, you know. But it, like, 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 I don't know where we got... I mean, I know where we got it, but like, I don't know where we got this idea that it's just purely objective fact. You know, because... Even the randomized control tile, there's an error bar, you know. There's, even if it's perfectly done, you get the result that you're hoping for. You match the hypothesis. There's an error bar, you know. And especially the last two and a half, almost three years now, you can see how quickly a small bit of correlation turns into causation <laughs> in the discussion of things. I'm like, Wait, slow. Hey, <laughs> you you know that that's not what that means. Um, so anyway, but you see how the numbers, you know, they dictate everything, and it's it's um it's even just looking at poll numbers and like what's the poll number? But they're calling people on landlines. <laughs> We're still using a landline, right? Certain people. So I really think that objectivity. Just the pretense of it just needs to go. You know, because I've never heard literally that statement, I'm objective. But there's so many ways people say that without saying that. And they use it, they can use it to hide their racist beliefs in Mm -hmm. that, um, whether they do it explicitly or or implicitly, they will be like, well, I'm objective. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. So I think that we just have to, just everyone has to agree that it is impossible as a human being to be objective. Even if you are using numbers, the numbers were constructed in the world, which is not objective, the world which is embedded with systemic racism, with patriarchy, with many other different oppressive systems. So, Like when I think about that um, study that was done on the same race teachers, you know, that big one that came out? <laughs> yeah. Right? And I think story context is really important for explaining something like that. Because if you think about now the authors did not call it a causation. They did not say that. They said there's a certain amount of correlation in terms of graduation and having at least one black teacher. Or I think it's one race teacher. Four black students so they're black. But anyway, the point is if you don't understand the context of racism you might not be able to understand why even just having one black teacher could correlate to that. Because if you're thinking in other ways, you're like, just one. What did they do in that class? Right? But I just know, I can remember, I can tap into that feeling of just like, I didn't have any. <laughs> and so, you know, thinking about what would it have been? Well, I'd probably say I graduated high school, but I mean, like, what would it have been? To have someone up there who was giving me, like, I've taken some really important lessons from it, like middle school and high school teachers, that stick with me, especially as a writer. Or when I read a text, and I think, you know, my brain still looks at the alliteration, right? Mm. You know, it's just like it's there, like that's never coming out. But what if that woman had been black? And that woman was actually like one of the best teachers I've ever had, so I'm not criticizing her. Mm-hmm. She, 
he's the one who was bringing us Zora Neale Hurston and shit like that. So, like, she's all right. But, like, would have been cool if I could have that in it. And it was a black woman. You know, in the classroom, I had teachers at home. You know what I'm saying? So. I think there was a study, though, that used a randomized control trial um, to prove that uh, black and brown teachers were more effective. Mm. Uh, and I think once I, I've cited that study, I've cited a lot of studies, I presented it to mostly white audience, and there's still people who doubted it. And that's when it clicked for me that I was like, it doesn't matter how much evidence I bring to you. It doesn't matter if I bring you the best evidence because it's really hard to get randomized controlled trial evidence, but it doesn't matter if I bring you the best evidence and a whole lot of other evidence to back that up. You're still going to question it. You're still going to doubt it and you're still going to not want to invest in it. This was um, in work that I did years ago. Um, so I, and that's when it made me think that no matter what people are still going to be racist, it doesn't matter if you bring the numbers and I still want to do the work that I want to do, but it's just really important to acknowledge that, that you can always bring the best numbers, but people who don't want to contribute to to, to ending systemic racism, contribute to ending inequality, they're not going to do it. It doesn't matter what, what you bring them. Because I thought that if I brought them the best evidence, they can be like, great, uh, but that's not it. Yeah, that's why I gave up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, interesting. Yeah, I have not given up. So I think in, in terms, but not in that no, way. No, but what, what I mean about giving up. Yes, yeah, not like you give up on the, the numbers as a tool for social justice. Or just, just, I can't be the messenger of the number. Mm-hmm. I know that I'll obsess, I'll obsess, I'll obsess. If they're a little bit wrong, I feel like they won't tell, but you know, and I learned a few times when I started talking out about this very particular niche whiteness and language teaching, right? Like, there's not, not because I'm so amazing in the sense that, like, my article was one of the first ones on it. It's just because I Googled it and I did searching and then just, there just weren't any. And I was like, weird. <laughs> so, so I was like, I guess I gotta write it. I don't know. Or maybe they existed but had never been published, but whatever. And, I remember when I used to soft pedal this stuff, try to be very like diversity as opposed to being specifically anti-racist or pro-black or whatever. People be mad when, <laughs> you know, so they get mad now. I get like racist emails, but it's not really worse. In fact, it feels less bad now. Hmm. Because I'm actually challenging them, and I could, I'm like, no, you're mad because I made you mad. Okay. Before, when they would get up on me, and I wasn't even saying the word white or anything like that, mm. I was like, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> and so, at a certain point, I realized the only way out was through. Um, and so I just started speaking to that. But I don't, I guess, don't have. I remember I thought about. I was still in my second year thinking about quantitative stuff and I was in the like quantitative methods class at that point and I had a real hard ass professor she was very good but she's you know one woman fully dropped out of the program because of this class um, but I told her one of the things I wanted to do was develop an instrument about anti-racism or something like that I hadn't really fleshed it out yet 
just said, okay, it's going to be a whole career. It's going to take you a long time. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) well, I didn't mean to say that you gave up, but I think people have given up using randomized control trials, using these advanced statistical models as a way for social justice. People are just like, you, you can't, you can't do quantitative and social justice. And the reason I think they say that is because there comes a certain point where you hit a wall because it's so systemic racism, intersectionality is so rich, so deep, so layered that you can't quantify it. Um, and that's why I think people say, you know, you can't do it. And maybe you can't do it, but all I'm saying is that we can be better with it. And there's a lot more room for improvement. And I'm going to push for us to be better with it. And for randomized control trials, I think that we can do them completely different. I think we've been doing them in ways that don't include community. We're not answering questions that community wants, that communities want to answer. We're not including them in the research process. Um, I've seen, I've funded evaluations in previous roles where they included an alumni from the program as a research assistant. Um, and I think like that's one way of really getting to people who understand the program. They're the research assistant, um, making sure you have an advisory board that consists of practitioners and community members, maybe academics, maybe not academics. So I think we can do things differently, but we haven't. So I'm not giving up on the method of a randomized control trial because I think the math is solid in some ways, but let's, do them differently. And I think it's still like the verdict is out. If we actually did it that way, would we get different results? Would we get actual not null, but would we get like this works and this doesn't work? And then the community can explain to you why. So that's like my hope is that we can do these rigorous quote unquote gold standard things, but do them in a way that is actually with communities. And maybe then we can get to better answers because the way we've been doing it the last 20 years hasn't worked. We haven't closed any equity gaps in terms of math achievement and reading achievement with NAEP, not saying that NAEP is everything, but they haven't moved. So for me, it's like you have to either throw out the the method or redo it with a completely different approach. Um, And then just adding to the measurement piece, I've seen some really cool measurement pieces um, that I wish I wrote. (laughs) <laughs> but one of them was a dissertation. Um, I think it was Christine Purdy, um, and she's a black woman. And she did, and I read her dissertation because it came up on Quantcrit, and I try to read all the literature. And she said she wanted to look at the factors in STEM that are barriers to black students. <laughs> so she created a measure specifically for black students, and her measure included um, – constructs of Afro world centricity, um, tropes of angry black woman, uh, microaggressions, um, acting white. So these are like she was creating constructs that she and probably her life and her environment experience and creating constructs to quantify those. And I thought that was really powerful in terms of thinking beyond this like white normative narrative. So I think that there's a lot of room to create these like new measures and measurement um it's just right for that but there's no funding that goes to that so i don't know how we're going to get there nobody wants to fund new measurement it's not sexy well so that's part of it right money that's what i said that's part of it right money (laughs) you know 
it's the same way I feel about aspects of my job where I'm just like, there are things that I think that if I was making things up, I'd do differently, but then there would be no money. <laughs> and I'm not saying, you know, just do everything for the money, but you got to eat and they got to eat, all that sort of thing. But also with the numbers thing, and it could be any exclusionary system. You can have two minds of it because people like me leave. But if we cede the territory to them, it'll just get worse. So I have no idea what we were talking about. We were talking about ceding space. <laughs> right. So you cede space to people. And then, like, the numbers are not going to go away. So someone's got that voice in there. And I think it's very similar to, like, two years ago, right before COVID. I was in this group of people who were do something different. Right? And not in a post-2020 way where, like, people want to do something different. <laughs> like, they really want to do something different. These salaries of color. Right? And they want us to do something different. Maybe we were thinking, maybe it'll be a journal, but, like, not an official type of journal because then we can do whatever we want. And then we're talking about stuff. We have these meetings and like people are like, it's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> we don't have that much money, you know? Um, how many things I've been a part of starting that are going to be different? And, you know, this, that, this is that to some extent, right? Podcast is different from a lot of podcasts and the things that I talk about, but you know, um, I think it's important to have different voices in exclusionary spaces because podcasting is still really white and male too. Um, and then also, it's also like, why go to speak at a conference? It's the same idea. Because people say the conferences are exclusionary. In a lot of ways, they are. But then like, if we don't go, nobody's there to do it. So... Ah, uh, it's this idea that we're just, I think, we're like mis underrepresented in all areas of this country, of this world. So if someone told me, just do whatever you want. You're underrepresented in, in all the areas. As a Latina, you'll add. Um, but that, that is like being stuck in a hard, in a rock in a hard place. Yeah, it's, um, it's like, so there's, um, I wasn't on the executive board for New York State TESOL, right? Teach, teaching English, speaking about that, you know. And, uh, so you have to be, you have to work the conference, right? You know, you gotta work the conference. Uh, that means like, each conference, each presentation has like, a person who makes sure things go okay. You right? got the discussion and the chair. Right, right. And I was like, I was person in the back. It's a small conference, but like I'm in the back and like making sure that like, People know where they're going, and, and it means I get to see a lot of the things that I wouldn't see otherwise. Like I would not be in these, I would not be watching these things. <laughs> so many of them are just literally ads for like companies. Mm. Like they're like, here's a teaching tip, and if you use our book, <laughs> mm. that's the only way the conferences get funded. And then. That's no, yeah, the the conferencing is such a good point because it is exclusionary in the sense that you have to be accepted or you only know about it. 
you have to pay to go to the conference and it might not be in an area that's close to you. Um, and I'm curious, I would love to know where else could we present our work that's not conferences? Um, and I think we need to start thinking more creatively about that. I don't know, but I present my work, my concrete work at conferences. Um, and the other place that I've presented is like universities asking me to present to their staff. But how do I get these ideas? And then, and the thing is that probably other people have these ideas. They just haven't conceptualized them into a framework and put them in this academic prose. Um, how do you start making those connections to those who are non-academics? Because for quant crit, at least, I like to always start my presentations of quant crit with honoring everyone that's come before me. And I think that starts with W.E.B. Dubois. In the early 1900s, he created the uh, portrait of Black America. And he was looking at data and using data visualizations to illuminate the inequities in the South. And that was, to me, the, the father of modern data visualization. That is quant crit. You're using data to illuminate inequity. So people have been doing this for over 100 years. Um, they just haven't been able to explicitly verbalize it. And that's what people tell me when they hear me talk about this work. They're like, I always thought that, but I didn't know how to like back it up or say it without having, you know, without sounding like I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, that's it. That's what I mean. It's a good point about, about him. I didn't even think about that. Um, when I think about presenting an audience and stuff like that, you know, I don't really modulate myself per se, not anymore. I feel like I've gotten to a point where Frankly, people expect me not to modulate myself. That's why they bring me on. You know, they know who I am. I think I'm getting there for sure. <laughs> you know, it's interesting um, being in that position, right? Where people hire you because some people might get upset, right? It's weird. Like they know it's going to happen and they do it anyway. Um, Apparently, maybe October, right after my book came out, I gave a bunch of little talks, right? And in one of the talks, my friend was there. It was a webinar. One of the talks, my friend was there, and she was in the comments and was talking about something. And then, apparently, someone who was there noticed her name and, like, told her supervisor that she was saying what they thought were negative comments. Like, People are just, you know, I don't know, I'm not getting people in trouble with shit. I don't do that. Not people who are like supporting me. I'm just, there's some people I get in trouble with. <laughs> people I like, you know. Um, but, you know, I think about all of that and that doesn't pay my bills, right? I'm doing that for fun. Yeah, I get a little bit of money for it, but it's not. That's my habit. Well, I, I think now, and it's unfortunate, I think that this perspective or the, these hot spicy takes are are now in vogue. Yeah. <laughs> so in some ways, I think we can like capitalize on that and finally start getting paid for all of our free labor that we've been doing for a really long time. Um, so it's been great to, I've, I've had some opportunities to serve on um, some advisory committees and get paid modest amounts of honorariums. But, you know, 
$200 is better than zero. <laughs> $500 is better than zero. And I think now is the time. And I, I'm get, I'm going to like ride that as far as, it, as long as it goes. Cause at some point they're going to be like, it's no longer cool. Please be quiet. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to get my, my next book contract now. When I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm still, while my book is literally selling, they love me. Like, you know, after being told right now. Ride the wave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotta ride the wave. And that was weird because, you know, my wave is quite funny. I was at home all the time just on, like, on webinars and stuff like that, you know, from the one and a half bedroom apartment that I used to have. Now it's two bedrooms, but still. Um, and, you know, Probably the thing that I've done that was the most watched was the two seconds I was on the news in Atlanta talking about why pandemic pods, which I can't, that's just like a fever dream that happened so long ago, but <laughs> what people were like, you know, making four or five person schools in 2020 because they didn't want their schools to be closed. Oh, um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and I was saying like, this is going to exacerbate inequity. Um, and then like they had all these white moms on there. <laughs> Now, it's a good thing this happened before the CRT nonsense started, because then that would have been a whole thing. So I, I don't, I do not need those people after me. <laughs> well, in terms of that, I feel like Quant Crit came in, a, in not the best time because it has the word CRT, um, and people have, uh, we obviously know people have misconceptions of what CRT is, and it's not a complicated idea. <laughs> Um, you know, it's the idea that racist systems exist, and if we don't have any individual people being racist, inequities will replicate by race. And that's how I try to explain, like, systemic racism and CRT being critical of that system. But that's one thing that I love concrete, but I wonder if people would just, if I changed the name and didn't change anything else, <laughs> if, if it would have a just a slightly broader, like, recept positive reception. Because Quancrit, all it's doing is just interrogating the society we live in. And that's what CRT is. So I hate that it got misconstrued into this thing that, that it isn't. Like, in my mind, if elementary schools are teaching CRT, wow, we are doing some high-order level thinking. And I am, like, I was an elementary school teacher. We were not there yet. I'm like, if people are doing this, we are doing something well. But people... They don't. They don't get that. The majority of the population. The most. Um, the time I bleached myself the most was I gave this recorded webinar for this. Just I guess they're just like professional development company that like pump things out like a Udemy kind of thing, you know. And I gave a recorded talk to them. I just didn't quite say the same thing. I, I made the same points, you know, they're paying me a lot of money, and I was just like, all right, I just won't say white. <laughs> you know, I, I criticized all of the systems. I was, it's what I want to do for the next book, which we see if they allow me to, is um, the original premise of this podcast, which more than three years ago, was going to be a really simple thing, which was like, I was going to take a word or two that seemingly is neutral, like race neutral, and explain 
why that's just racist or <laughs> why it's used in <laughs> racist ways, right? So the first episode is about expats and immigrants, mm. right? Um, and that's still the most listened to episode because I think people hear about the show and they're like, listen to the first episode. I'm like, don't do that. The audio is terrible. I'm mean, recording on my phone. It's like, don't, don't listen to that. Whatever. But I want to take some that and go through a whole bunch of systems and not just racist, but ableist and sexist, etc. Um, and that's what I was doing in that talk, the recorded talk. I was talking about like, when you refer to countries as developing, what are you really implying? You know, and saying like, first of all, we're ignoring the fact of why they're like that. And second of all, do we really want them to develop into us? So, you know, I just said it without saying what I say. And, you know, it went over well. And so I'm wondering if I could fit it that way. Look at that. Both of kind of said all I need to say to like language teachers. Like they say, you know, listen to them. I'm to listen. I don't really have anything else to say. I struggle with that a lot, being my full self versus like trying to cover, make things just lighter for other people. I would say that like 90% of the time, I'm like my full unapologetic self. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm sick of it. I'm just like, I'm just going to say it like it is. I was at a conference with mostly economists. Um, and then I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to say it like it is. I was calling people out left and right. And I'm like, I don't know if this is good or bad or if people are going to be receptive. But when I saw a bunch of um, people of color in the audience, I just felt more comfortable doing that. Um, I'm like, I have to be authentic to me. Um, and I think even if in the whole audience isn't people who I think are going to be receptive. Um, so I thought that was just, it's interesting how we're always struggling to figure out when and when not to do that. You know, it's interesting. My company, see you back here. I'm going to DC tomorrow for, um, like a holiday thing. Um, and, you know, I'm a little nervous because I like my coworkers a lot, but this is not an internal thing. That's why I'm going. Because like, if it was just an internal thing, I'm not going to go to the DC office. Just you know. <laughs> like, um, but this is like our the people from the program that I told you about the development programs are going. The ones who are in, in and around DC are going to be there. So this and some of the funders and um, and I'm nervous because we talk. I can have a conference. I went to one. I did not know how to small fat this at all. <laughs> I had to go like sit by myself frequently. I just keep just getting coffees by myself in the corner. <laughs> just like I don't because like if you're sitting out in public, you're like, why are you talking to people? So I had to go sit in the like coffee area like by myself. I just on my computer all day. Um and then I would go to the talk that my company was giving and then I was running the talk. So I wasn't talking, but I was like the tech guy for like our people. I was like air traffic control. Um, but yeah, because these people, they speak a different language from me. On the other hand, they are black. So, you know, we can talk about something. <laughs> <laughs> I've had too much practice, I think, being in these spaces, both with people of color and white people, just continuously being in spaces you just get a lot of practice in some ways I'm like am I acting white now I'm like oh my god I am and then I feel super guilty about it 
I developed this persona. Um, I went to the same very white school for like 14 years. And I didn't go out much. I was, my parents were pretty strict. But by senior year, I figured out how to get out. And I'm just staying with friends. And I was. We would just go out also. Um, I remember one of the times I went to a party. And I just developed this laugh. This is this high pitched laugh that I would just like use when I was out at the party. I don't know what happened, but it just sort of like, it sounded like everybody else's laugh. <laughs> I was just like, okay, there's some laughing like that. I don't know, I don't know what happened. One day I laughed like that and just kept laughing. I don't laugh like that. But I mean, like, and I realized as I went to college, something that would laugh And I'm like, oh no, he's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Here he comes. <laughs> I I lost my East LA accent. I was born and raised in East LA, and um, Chicanos here have a specific, like a specific way of talking. And I didn't lose it on purpose, but I lost it. Um, you know, I come home and people say you talk differently. I talk like a white person, and that happened unconsciously, but probably because that's what I thought people would. You know, if I did that, people would take me more seriously or think that I was smarter, but I have lost the way that I grew up talking. I still speak Spanish. Spanish is my first language, but my English now sounds very different. I, I wonder about that because, you know, I sound probably like my parents, I guess. Um, but they are both people from other places who moved to New York professionally. And met as adults here. I mean, they may be kids, but I just mean like they, both of their families pretty much all live in one place each. My dad's family was pretty much DC and my mom's mostly Philly. And they are both the one sibling who left. So they, uh, they don't really sound like they're from much of any place. I mean, American, but you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, so, that's me. <laughs> right. So I clearly sound like I'm from the Northeast, right? Like I talk really fast and so forth. But um, my parents didn't have strong what the people would understand as like New York accents or something, you know? Um, so I don't really. Like you could tell, but it's not like that. And a part of me wishes I had something more distinctive. I just sound like whoever was around me. You know, I mean, everybody does, but like, I really felt like people who were around me. Um, and then as I got older and I actually had some black friends, then I started trying to sound like that. I just tried to sound like everybody, not like consciously, but I, just, I don't want to stand out, you know? And then you realize that like, in the spaces we go to, we're always going to stand out. So the trick, <clears throat> I think, is if you're going to stand out, you got to be singular. And how do we use numbers to stand out? <laughs> All right. That's what we were talking about. At some point. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you can like think about using numbers like in order to like stand out in ways, just the thought of, you know, the asset based framework. Um, numbers don't always demonstrate our deficits, but they can also demonstrate our assets. 
same with measurement. We can think about measures that demonstrate how like my ability to code switch into English and Spanish and speak Spanglish is a measure of, you know, cognitive ability that most Americans don't have. But that measure is not valued by other people. But, you know, I can switch into English and Spanish instantly in one in one paragraph. Um, so I think that's like thinking about that as as a value add um, is important when thinking about measurement and, and what indicators we value. You know, it's funny because I'm actually working on some quantitative assessments right now for my job. And one of the things, one of the reasons we're doing it is that we haven't really done much of the past. We give them plenty of surveys and they can be quantitative, obviously, because the microscale involved, but um, they're mostly opinions, right? And we want to give them some like questions, questions. If they know the stuff, it's class, right? But I'm trying to approach this task not as an assessment of their abilities, right? It's we're planning to give them the questions at the beginning as modules, and at the beginning and end of the module, we're doing it like a preview review where you sort of get a preview of the questions for the next module, see how many you get, and then we give them to you again at the end, right? And the goal is less like golden, but more for us to say like. Well, clearly that lesson is not going well. <laughs> you know, mm. like to to think of it in terms of like how can we do better, right? You know, and think of it in terms of like where are we seeing a lack of engagement, not because there's something wrong with the participant, but because of who we chose to teach that week's thing. It's a bunch of like different presenters and that sort of thing. So anyway, Dr. Castillo, I do have to attend to the child in a moment. Uh, I'll, I'll get several extra hours after you go to bed, be out here. Um, but I will be finally get a chance to talk about this. And I don't really talk about numbers as part of this, but that's obviously what we're going to go into. So. <laughs> um, well, it was really great talking to you. Um, that was really a fun conversation that went, yeah, from numbers to our personal identities. And I think it just talks, you know, speaks volumes of how we cannot disassociate who we are from the work that we do. And I don't try to, but we just like, even if we try, it always comes back to, to that, to who we are and where we come from. I mean, that's exactly the point, right? I think that for so long, you know, when you look at that racist word gap shit, right? You know, that's a bunch of numbers, but you're missing the story. Or you look at the, the, um, those initial studies in the, I was the 60s and 70s where, you know, the black kids weren't speaking as often because like they were nervous because the freaking researcher was in their house. <laughs> um, which I also wonder all of the time when there are white researchers in black classrooms. I'm just like, I don't think you're getting authentic data. I don't, I'm not sure how authentic this data is when you're standing there and they just like, sure, here's this white man. <laughs> you know? I I would feel differently. I would feel like I was on a reality show and there was a camera. That's how I would feel. <laughs> it was saying, if I'm in a room of black kids, there's just like one white man standing there. Not not just if there's a white man in general, but that's just white. <laughs> yes, it is.